Chef, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Andrew, we don't know each other, uh, but we started following each other right after the tragic passing of uh, Carl Ruiz, and I don't even know how that happened. That's just the magic of Twitter, but uh, how'd you know Carl? You know, actually, I knew him through some of his family, actually, uh, that I worked closely with, cousins and uh, and uh, his, um, I guess, cousin-in-law. So, And, of course, just, you know, travels through the industry, being from Jersey and, uh, you know, being obsessed with everything he does like everyone else was. You hung out with him before and hung out, like partied with him? Not crazy. No, no, no. Just in the same circle. Okay, okay. Because those party nights with Carl never ended. That's why I was curious. You always ended up at the Dirty Water Dog on like Broadway and 43rd Street with him. (laughs) Yeah, and I wasn't fortunate enough to have that opportunity. The whole chef world, it's like a weird crew because it seems like everyone knows each other. Everybody knows each other. You're always in the same crew, right? Oh, it's the whole bit. It's, it's, It's the Kevin Bacon thing, but closer, right? I mean, you know. Somebody's worked with somebody in some restaurant. I think obviously when you get on the East Coast too, right? You get into the tri-state area, uh, and then and then people spread out from there. I mean, it's funny. I'm out in California, but I still guys that I worked with from the East Coast. There's connections all throughout California, just randomly. I mean, it's nuts. Well, you brought up the East Coast, and I didn't know that about you. And uh, I did a quick Wikipedia search like 10 minutes ago, and obviously everything on Wikipedia must be true. But you're a Jersey guy. Yeah, I'm a Jersey boy. You got it. What part of Jersey? Um, I'm from Somerset County, Bridgewater. So, you know, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes outside New Brunswick. More importantly now, where on the shore did you hang out? What beach was your go-to beach? Well, so it's funny you ask that. So I grew up in Bridgewater, except then I moved. And before I moved out to California, I actually lived in Asbury Park for four years. I opened uh, restaurants out there right, right when they were turning Asbury Park around. And because of that, I mean, you know, now Asbury, that whole area is pretty much my my beach. My mom ended up moving down there. But uh, I grew up going to LBI, of course. Of course you did. Now, were you a sports guy or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who are your teams? 100%. I'm a Yankees guy. Yankees, Giants, you name it. So you didn't switch allegiances when you moved out to the West Coast, right? Oh, heck no. No, <laughs> not, not only that, I'll tell you the worst is, is that I was living up in Boston and working for the Ritz. Uh, when the Yankees uh, got got uh, when the Sox won the series, oh. and I, the reason this is a highlight of my life was that I was uh, running well. I was the the sous chef over at the uh, one of the restaurants there, and got to cook for the Yankees every single time they came in town to play. Oh, that's and, cool! Uh, so it was like the most bittersweet year of my life. <laughs> Grown up in Jersey, obviously we'll talk about Maine and Boston and stuff. Was it always chef or bust for you? That was it? No, no. You know, I got I started working in Jersey uh, in restaurants, catering, et cetera. When I was in high school, you know how it works, right? Your mm-hmm. parents are like, get a, get a job. And uh, I couldn't. I wanted to get a job at a pizza joint. I just seemed like that was fitting for me because the amount of pizza I ate and I hung out there so much. But, um, you know, all the, all the local family pizza joints, you, you, unless you're blood, you, you can't work there. Of course. Um, and uh, so I started working out at the uh, Short Hills Hilton, actually, uh, a hotel out there and working in, in, in restaurants and hotels, but never actually thought it was going to be my career. And then how did how'd you go up to Bates College up in Maine? I, I saw that. That's a weird transition, Jersey guy going to Maine for college. Yeah, I was actually, I was a runner, right? So I, uh, <laughs> I was a long distance runner and I didn't know whether I wanted to go D1 or D3. And mm. uh, I liked their running program up there. I was kind of an outdoor an outdoorsy guy and figured... Right. I mean, it's still close enough to Jersey, but you're up there in Maine. It's a whole nother world. So ended up going up there, small, small college and uh, 
you know, ran up there for one year, but it's just, it's just like a Jersey boy up in Maine. It, 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 I, <laughs> I stuck out with a sore thumb. Now fill in the timeline because you're in Bates College in Maine. You just mentioned Boston at the Ritz and then out to California. Fill in that timeline for me. Well, what's funny is, is that I went up to Maine, right? So, you know, I'm going up there for college and, uh, you know, busting my butt and, and running and, and, um, got to make money. Right. So what do I know? I know restaurants. So I start working in restaurants along the coast there and I start, I meet a bunch of lobstermen. So I start learning the lobster trade. I spend more time working in restaurants than I do going to school or running. So I end up quitting running, which is what I went up there for, for distance running. I went up to, uh, and, and I, my, my first semester up there, I was killing it in school. And then I just started bombing immediately because I'm working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, uh, in restaurants. And then, so I just left college after one year and knew that restaurants was what I wanted to do. So, uh, you know, kind of traveled around the country trying to work underneath a lot of different chefs and learning as much as I could through the industry. Eventually went back to school in Colorado, went to uh, Johnson and Wales out there in Denver and got my culinary degree and uh, worked for some chefs out there and uh, eventually worked my way back east to work for the Ritz Carlton in uh, in Boston, which was great, had a real awesome culinary program up there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then from there, you know, it was, it was kind of bouncing around, went back to Jersey and uh, worked for the Marriott down there in Jersey at a, a, a hotel restaurants, working through New York, New Jersey. And then the, you know, beautiful recession of 2008 hits. Yeah. And, uh, what was, it was like October. I remember I think it was like October 12th or 13th. And I just opened up. So, you know, Asbury Park at all? Of course. All right. So you got the original Howard Johnson's right there on the boardwalk, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The old school Hojo's. And that when they were flipping and turning Asbury around... They said um, the development company, Madison Marquette, said, well, look, if we build a good restaurant in here, we start with a restaurant, people will come and then we'll take over the boardwalk and we'll do the retail. So the first thing to go in was they they took that old Hojo's and they turned it into kind of like a a beach cafe, right? Saltwater Beach Cafe. So I came in as the opening chef to open that up. And then uh, this was still in 2007. And then McClune's, uh, Tim McClune, who's a, a kind of a local Jersey style celebrity restaurant tour, he ended up buying it out. And then he opened up McClune's Supper Club up on the second story uh, overlooking the water there. And I opened that up as well. So I was running some of Tim McClune's restaurants. And then when the recession hit, he had to downsize. Um, I got let go because they didn't really run a culinary program anymore. And I ended up, uh, I was obsessed with seafood, been obsessed with seafood my whole life since I was working up there in Maine, lobstering, okay. et cetera. Okay. And a headhunter reached out to me. It was like, look, this is a really random opportunity, but they're looking for a chef with a marketing background. I eventually did go back to school and get my business degree um, with a business degree who knows seafood because they're looking for somebody to run a sustainable seafood program at the Aquarium of the Pacific out in Long Beach, California. Right. So, So to a Jersey boy, that's like, we, you know, oh, California, right? Everybody's everybody watches the videos. Everybody wants to see the beaches out there. So I went out and took a look at it, fell in love with SoCal because it's beautiful. Ended up in Southern California running this nonprofit program, basically connecting local fishermen at the time to chefs all throughout Southern California. I, I grew that program to kind of make it a little bit more international. I mean, I was visiting fish farms and working with aquaculture operations and commercial fishermen all over the United States and beyond into Canada and other places. And uh, we, we had a grant from the Pacific Life Foundation. Eventually, the grant ran out. And uh, I said, look, I've created all these relationships. I'm a, I'm a culinary guy by heart. Why don't I leverage that seafood knowledge into 
a business concept. Um, so I took every penny I had leveraged and maxed out all my credit cards and I went and bought a food truck and started Slapfish uh, in 2011 as a food truck. Uh, and that, that's how it all came about. I want to rewind one second because I love when I have a chef on. Besides Carl, I'm good friends with Andy Ricker who owns Pock Pock. And his thing is you know, northern Thai food. And what is it about seafood? Because you mentioned that lobster, it spoke to you. Was there a dish that you loved that it consumed you? Why seafood? It's a weird thing to become like engrossed in. And there's not, truthfully, a lot of places like yours. So what was it about seafood that you loved? Well, you think about it, right? So all fi- all the fish tell stories. Not not all fish are migratory species. By that, I mean you've got like your tuna and your swordfish, and they can be in Japan one day and then in Hawaiian waters the next day. But most fish, right, swims within like a mile or two of their own waters. So each fish tells its own local story, whether it's a lake fish out of Michigan, whether it's, you know, mid-Atlantic rockfish, whether it's grouper out of Florida. I mean, every single area we could talk about in the world, there's some fish that tells a story about that particular geographic region. And obviously, food is all about story stories and family and history food is the the ultimate connector so seafood furthermore really kind of tells that story to me so looking at the history of all these different countries it all comes back to seafood all of our economies the foundation of every single economy is based upon the seafood trade itself so there's a ton of history there too being kind of a history geek i love that on the culinary side when it comes to seafood right if you're if you're a steakhouse You've got different cuts of steak. And yeah, you know, you can tell people about I got grass fed, I got grain fed or <laughs> this particular type of meat, but meat's meat, right? Mm-hmm. The thing about seafood that's awesome is, is that I can give you groupers, one type of fish, and then you might eat tuna. And that's a totally different type of fish within the seafood world. Every single species is an entirely different flavor, right? So, I mean, I can have a restaurant with a hundred different fish on the menu and every single dish is going to be totally different. Steak is steak. Maybe one's a filet, maybe one's a strip loin or one's a burger. But at the end of the day, it's still kind of that flavor profile. And the same doesn't apply for seafood. So from a di- the, the perspective of culinary diversity, that's where I love seafood from the culinary side. So it kind of connects all those worlds and the stories that you can tell. So that, that, that's my, my, uh, my obsession, if you will. I love it. Now, how long were you out in California before you opened up Slapfish? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Why the name and how important is the name when starting a business? Uh, the, the, the name is everything, but people overthink it, right? I mean, and that's what we do all days, uh, nowadays with everything. We into over-intellectualize everything. Um, uh, so for me, you know, I spent like months thinking about the name and, you know, I came up with like Boathouse Tavern and all these different things that had different meetings. And, you know, I felt like I was the Hemingway of naming restaurants. And then uh, one day I, I'm, I'm sitting around and uh, me and a, uh, you know, a, like a chef buddy of mine were breaking down fish to get ready to go onto the food truck. And I got this big old fish sitting there and I turn around and, you know, we, we, we maybe were drinking a ton. I mean, a little bit. And he, I turn around, he smacks me across the face with the fish. Right. So I'm laughing and, you know, I, I keep retelling the story week after week to other friends. I'm like, yeah. And then he slaps me in the face with the fish. And then it was just one moment. You know, there was this aha moment where I'm like, wait a minute after retelling it okay that sounds good slapfish and uh i've always been obsessed with onomatopoeia mm-hmm. uh snap crackle pop <laughs> so the name slapfish was born and what were you serving in your original food truck it was two items that's it i oh. did new england lobster rolls mm-hmm. and i did uh fish tacos when did you know you were onto something was there a moment and it was 2011 so it wasn't viral stuff was it when did you know like was it the long lines like hey i got something big here 
Yeah. So what happened was I had already kind of created a relationship with the community through the aquarium because I knew so many chefs by kind of educating them and working through that program that I had somewhat of a following when I said I was going to be launching this food truck within that kind of geeky seafood world. And um, so we got the truck and I wrapped the whole thing. Um, I had like 50 portions of lobster rolls and, and enough for like maybe 20 fish tacos. And I tweeted out, hey, I'm going to be you know, at X and X, I don't even remember where it was come show up. So I pull up to the spot and there was like 150 people there. I'm like, wow. how's this even possible? I didn't even think there were 150 people. I didn't even think I knew 150 people. <laughs> and you know, it was, look, it wasn't me. It wasn't the name. It was strictly the fact that there was a new kind of breed of seafood in the market um, and, and I started asking everybody, I'm like, what is it that drove you out here? And they're like, well, look, the fact of the matter is, you know, you, you told the story that you, you knew where the seafood was coming from. Um, it was a food truck. You've got a good background and all of our options are only on the one end of the spectrum. It's like white tablecloth, fine dining seafood on the other end of the spectrum. We got greasy fried, like long John silvers, and there's nothing in that approachable area. That's why we came. That was really the secret sauce, um, for why people came originally and that was kind of that that first uh connector now so you guys are pretty profitable early on then right (laughs) i wouldn't say profitable (laughs) you know we're we're profitable in the sense that i was really the only one working it in the beginning i mean you know you're up five o'clock in the morning um i'm uh you know i i did three meal services a day sorry about that i'm in the restaurant right now so everything's ringing in the background here (laughs) but i'm doing three meals a day um you know so we would do like a lunch stop I would do a, a dinner stop and then I would do the late night bar crap. Right. So, um, I get in at one or two o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's literally, it was like four hours of sleep and turn around and do it again. So if you look at it in the sense of, I had really no, not much labor cost, then it, it was somewhat profitable. But the original goal from the beginning was use the food truck as kind of a mobile marketing campaign to launch a brick and mortar. Oh, I so just didn't have the money. Always in the back of your mind, you wanted to know you wanted to have a straight up restaurant. Yeah. So I, I pitched the whole thing as a restaurant to begin with as a brick and mortar. Nobody would invest in it. I couldn't get money from anybody. And I kept reading all these, you know, kind of venture capital blogs and everyone's like, well, you got to have a good beta. And it was very techy. And I'm like, how the heck do you beta a restaurant? Right. <laughs> um, so at the time, there was no gourmet food trucks. That whole that whole food truck thing hadn't hit yet. This was 2011. Kogi was kind of the first right. Mm-hmm. Roy Choice spot. Um, so I actually, the way I even got the food truck was I went down to the, to the lot and I asked some guy, I was like, Hey, can I, can I basically pay you on a weekly basis to use your roach coach? And this is a guy who would hit the construction lots and, you know, sell fish tacos and, and egg sandwiches. So, uh, we kind of, we, we were kind of fortunate enough to be first of our kind in that regard. 2011, you open up the truck. when did you have the fr- a restaurant when that opened up? Uh, so we opened on May 5th, 2011, and then I opened up my brick and mortar on, uh, April 19th, 2012. Oh, under a year. Yeah. Wow. How about the biggest mistake? Cause you're, listen, you'll be on successful now. You got franchises. What's the biggest mistake you made early on looking back now? You're like, are you kidding me? I did that. Um, well, the first, the second time I went out after my first day, the, the, the biggest mistake is, um, typical andrew right where I, I i'm always kicking the can down the road procrastination you know i'm the guy that did the you know the term paper the night before it was due well i'm thinking i take the food truck out on the road and i'm like oh yeah i can make it with gas 
when I get to my destination oh. and I and I and I ran out of gas on the 405 freeway in California. If you don't know the 405, I mean, just imagine like the Merritt Parkway just jam packed for like three hour traffic or, 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 or something along those lines. And I, I actually created like a four hour traffic jam because I, I was driving the food truck in the carpool lane, um, had to get the food truck towed. It was the best marketing in the world. It was like sky five news. You know, they're like, we there's a food truck stuck here in the uh, carpool lane. What kind of a moron does that? It sounds genius. And there's slap fish right there, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, now you mentioned uh, you're like middle of the road. Obviously, you're not the greasy food, fast food, and you're not the uh, high-end dining. So what exactly, like, compare it to other kind of cuisines. Like what would you be? Like what other stores maybe or what other uh, franchises? Um, yeah, I would say we're like the, you know, I mean uh, this could be offensive, but maybe the Shake Shack of uh, of the seafood world. Oh, okay. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so it's not like uh, Peter Luga Burgers and it's not McDonald's. You're You're – more high class than McDonald's and like better food, but like a kind of a fast food, better food. Yeah, it's that quality of fine dining at the cost and convenience of faster food. And what made you not want to have like a high end restaurant? I mean, I've seen the unit economics there. That's the beauty of understanding, at least to some degree, kind of that 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 element. Um, and having having worked in full service and fine dining my whole life, I knew how tight it was. I also knew that coming out of a recession, I was looking at the numbers and. Fast casual as kind of a as an industry sector was the only sector that was booming coming in into a recession. Everybody was trading down from full service to fast casual. So that was that was kind of the market um, movement that was driving me into that category. Brick and mortar, that was always your idea. How about franchising? Was that always your end game? Like, listen, this is going to blow up. I want to have a franchise. No, I always wanted to do uh, multi-unit growth through either private equity or investment and have everything be corporate owned. But, um, you know, it was uh, I'm just not good at raising money. Right. That's one thing I'm not good at. <laughs> so after I opened one location and I could prove that it could be profitable, I went back and everyone was like, all right, come to me at five locations. And I'm like, all right. So if I come to you with five locations, then you'll invest. And everyone's like, yeah, just come to us with five locations. So after getting rejected for an investment um, time and time again, I said, well, no matter what I have to do to get to five locations. And that's when I decided that franchising could be the vehicle through which I could grow it. So now you're the owner of Slapfish uh, Franchise. You have like 20-something locations from California down to Florida up to South Carolina. Why not anything in your hometown tri-state area? I'm keeping it all for myself. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, to come back home, it'll be the uh, the homecoming. And in that case, I might do it more as like a full service slash fast casual, really blow it out, have a bar associated with it. Uh, so that's the goal. Any plans to go international? Uh, we So in 2013, we sold to um, actually somebody from the Bahrainian royal family, and we did a deal, and we opened up in Dubai. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I spent most of 2013 traveling back and forth to Dubai. Uh, and, um, they opened, uh, a beautiful location in a mall out, you know, it's all malls out there. Of right? course. You yeah, got yeah, ski, yeah. You got ski slopes and malls. We opened up in a, in a mall out there, did really well. It was full service, finer dining. Cause that's how they wanted to do it. Fast casual doesn't really mm -hmm. at the time didn't hit out there. And then after a year of opening it, they're like, yeah, we don't really want to do this anymore. So they ended up just shutting it down just because it was kind of a hobby gone bad. Oh, that's a bummer. Um, yeah, and then we uh, we just opened last year in London, so we actually do have one location in London. And how's that one doing? Well, we're shut down now, and as you know, uh, things are a little crazy in London. So oh, I know, uh, I know. You know, to be to, to be determined. 
Now, this might be a dumb question, but there's obviously different fish and styles of eating that vary from like state to state, coast to coast. So how much time and trial? Because like you have your menu out there in California where you're crushing it. And now you have a place in Maryland. Is it different food, different flavors? Because it's like different fish. Exactly. So we've got one kind of set framework of a menu and then you can you can pick and choose your fish and the fish will change based upon the region. Some of the fish remain the same. Like we're always using Maine lobster. We never substitute that and we buy so much of it that we can take future purchases on it. But in mid-Atlantic, we might be using, um, you know, Chesapeake blue catfish or mid-Atlantic rockfish, grouper, snapper. Um, and then out on the West Coast, we might be using like, you know, California sea bass, black cod, California halibut. And then you can have that in a taco or on the salad or on the bowl or on a sandwich. Um, but the so it's kind of like the architecture of the dish remains the same and you can sub in the fish you want. Obviously, I'm not in the seafood business, but dealing with seafood has always been like portrayed as, I guess, delicate. Is it fresh? Is it is it going to go bad? How do you deal with it? How do you cook it? How do you have all these franchises worry about that and deal with that? Like there's so much fish coming to your place. How do you like make sure it's all fresh? Now, nah, that's a great question, um, uh, especially because well, yeah, when it comes to seafood, I mean that, that it, it is delicate and it definitely it's got a shorter, shorter shelf life. So I use the analogy of sushi. Right. So all sushi has to be frozen because the freezing kills the parasites. So in actuality, some of the highest quality fish in the world has all been frozen at sea. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is is that we've actually adopted um, the frozen at sea technology into our system so that we get all of our fish. It's properly frozen at sea all sashimi and sushi quality uh, so that we can get it then distributed into our purveyors in our brand box. It's our, it's our own seafood that we purchase processed to our spec. And then that gets dropped in frozen to all of our, um, to all of our restaurants. But the thing is, it's got to be properly frozen such that when it gets refreshed, it's as if it just came out of the water. And I'll tell you what, like 95% of all seafood in the U S has been frozen anyway. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. People don't realize, you know, they always ask, is this fresh or frozen? When you go out on the fishing boats, I mean, they drop they drop it right into an ice slushy. Most of it's just frozen. It's blast frozen anyway. That's crazy. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned your, you know, the original slapfish truck, lobster roll. You just mentioned it again. Is that your signature, signature dish, like your go-to dish? Is that lobster roll? It was in the beginning. We also created a, what I call the lobstacle. Um, so then we, we kind of pivoted to the home of the lobstacle. Now we've taken that off the menu just cause it's not, it's just, it's just not profitable at all. But, um, yeah, we're well known for our lobster rolls, but our lobster grilled cheese has taken over, which is just half crab, half lobster. Um, you know, it's kind of like the ultimate adult grown up grilled cheese. I'm glad you just brought that up because I just told my wife, Hey, go to this dude's Instagram page because I don't have Instagram, and I actually just Google sometimes your name, even though you post a million pictures on Twitter. Give the plug because you're really one of my favorite follows on social media. So you're the definition of what Instagram and Twitter should be for. No hate, no you know divisiveness. So give everyone the uh, the plug for the food porn that you put up every few minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you want which plug? The plug on my uh, my handles or the food? Oh. <laughs> No, give the plug because you, you know you go to your uh, your Instagram and your Twitter. You're posting this amazing food all the time. It's all yeah. It's it's, it's that that's it. I mean, you know, message through food, right? Over the top, drool worthy. Roll up your sleeves. Got you. Got to be able to taste the sauce. I'm still work trying to work with uh, Instagram on getting some sort of scratch and sniff technology <laughs> built in, but uh, they won't return my phone calls. So, so, what are your handles for your Twitter and Instagram? Uh, so on uh, I'm Chef Gruel. 
uh, on Twitter, and that's just as it sounds, Chef Gruel, and then Andrew Gruel, my full name, uh, one word on Instagram. And it's lobster, gooey cheese coming out of toast. You you make every single food that you pick up just look, look incredibly delicious, bro. I appreciate that. Thank you. Now, uh, are those some old picks? Or are you always cooking at home, always experimenting, taking pictures? Both, both. I mean, you know, living in restaurants, it's like it's easy to just constantly have new content because I'm around it. That's my office. You know, Uh, my office is literally a professional kitchen. And so if I'm going to hit like a a day in the life, if I'm going to hit six or seven of my spots around here, you know, I'm 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 in I'm in the kitchen most of that time. And I got the opportunity to just keep taking photos, posting it up. But it's market research, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if I get feedback on something or something starts to hook, then I know, okay, let's push that. Let's push that item a little bit further. Now, we, we just talked about Instagram. Now, being a chef in, in the Instagram world, uh, is it difficult not – because, listen, your food, no matter what it comes down to, you take pride in your food being delicious. People want to come back for it. But it's difficult to balance both things like, hey, this food's off the hook delicious, but I got to make it Instagrammable for people? Yeah, it's a great question. Nowadays, that's what people want, right? Uh, you got, it's like, you got to manicure it. So we try not to do that. I mean, you know, it's our food should look when it gets to the guest exactly like it does on Instagram. Right. So if we start, you know, we start putting, uh, if we start plucking eyebrows on our burritos (laughs) and, and making our, making our food look too sexy, people are going to be, when they show up for the real date, they're going to feel like they were catfished. So, uh, we, we try and keep it as real as possible. Hard to do, but, um, you know, it, it, one drives the other. We're dealing with the COVID stuff. You're at the restaurant now. You brought up London. Restaurants are slowly opening up. Not here in New York. Don't get me started with that. But I heard two things, and maybe you can clear them up. One, many workers seem that they don't want to come back because they're making too much money on unemployment. Is that true or false uh, dealing with you also? Uh, that is, in our case, it's true, right? And, and, you know, it's it's the reality of the situation too, and I and I and I posted about this on Twitter, and man, did I ever get beat up? Um, I, I posted about it not as a as a subjective, um, you know, kind of uh, post to put out there, but more of just a, the economic status or reality of the situation, and it's and it's kind of the quandary, right? Um, people are making more money, or at least enough money, to not work than they would be if they were working. So when I posted it, I used the example of like a server who's making a thousand dollars on unemployment. And if they work for us, they might make 1500 a week, right? Because they're going to bring home tips, but at the same rate, you can make a thousand and not have to work and follow through on, you know, books you wanted to catch up on or, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe, maybe a knitting uh, hobby that you wanted to start. <laughs> we hire a lot of knitters <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I get it. Right. I totally get it, but that's the reality of the situation. So we're having a really hard time right now bringing staff in to bring back into the restaurants. And number two, like I said, I was talking to Andy Ricker from Pock Pock and he said, he's a little nervous about opening his place. Now, I don't know if this is right or wrong because he's saying with these new precautions, you might have to only have the restaurant half full. And he was saying that he would have to charge more for his food. Is that something that's uh, concerning to you? Yeah, I mean, for us, well, so he's got full service restaurants, and I understand because in his case, obviously, you know, there people are spending a lot more time, and there's less turnover because we're a lot, you know, we're kind of quicker and we're fast, casual, quick service, do a lot of takeout. For us, um, 
it's not as sensitive in regards to the amount of people that we bring in. But for the full service restaurants, 100 percent true. I mean, that that could be a kiss of death. Right. Because if you're working on like one or two percent margins, you need high revenue. You know, you've got to have high revenue. So when you look at a lot of these food businesses that are doing only two or three percent, they're, they're doing a billion dollars in sales. And on a restaurant perspective, if you're doing five million in sales in a full service restaurant, you can drop three percent on five million in sales. That's still, you know, that's still a, a reasonable profit. Um, but uh, when you start cutting that revenue, that's where you get into trouble. Now, you said I know you have 20 something franchises. Are any of them open or are the ones you're at opening up? How's that all going for you? Yeah, so we op- because we're in all these different states, we've had to kind of navigate this. It really is. It's like a gauntlet. Or uh, I, I, you know, because I'm not that mature, I think of it more as that final uh, obstacle course at the end of Double Dare when you're trying to find <laughs> the blue flag in the nose. And each each obstacle is a different state that I'm trying to figure out what the regulations are. And I've yet to get that flag in the nose. But um, you know, like we're open, we've got one location in Georgia, right? So they, they obviously opened up really early and then we've got locations in Utah and Arizona and they opened up without any restrictions. But I'll tell you what, overall, what we're seeing is that even up until two weeks ago, right? So I, I, and I'll explain why in a sec, but up until two weeks ago, the stores that we opened with no restrictions, because like, for example, Arizona, there were no restrictions. It was still 70% takeout. So even though the state said, yeah, go ahead and open, people were still self-managing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who didn't want to go out to eat weren't going out to eat. It was, it was good, right? I mean, people can think on their own. But the minute that, um, you know, for better or worse, right? once again, I'm not making this statement with opinion. I'm just giving you fact. Once the protests kind of started and the images started popping up of like millions of people shoulder to shoulder, suddenly everyone came in and wanted to dine in the restaurant. It was crazy. Wow. It was like overnight. So basically, listen, not getting into all that stuff, of course, but people like, listen, they're all out here, not social distant. I guess it's over. That's the way people are thinking just probably by seeing that. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. It kind of maybe lessened people's fear. Yeah. Yeah. Less. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. It was like overnight. Um, So we actually had to rush because I wasn't even going to open some of the restaurants in California, even though we could, because I'm like, ah, you know, until we can really do it, let's just keep doing um, takeout or patio dining. Mm-hmm. But then our, the demand was so high that we had to rush a plan together to get all the dining rooms open. Oh, that's good for you. So now what's next for you? Be, be, you as a chef, the slap, uh, fish franchise, how about any cookbook, new locations, anything coming up good for you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of new locations on the horizon right now. We're looking at, um, looking at, you know, I've got a couple different concepts, obviously that I'm also, I'm running. I got a chicken concept. I've got a pizza concept. I've actually got a vegan concept, um, uh, which, by the way, it's called Butterleaf. It's called it's the, the 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 tagline is vegan uh, vegetables for meat eaters. So I don't <laughs> I don't want to uh, brand myself on that one. But you know, so so whether it's new concepts, still growing out the Slapfish brand, trying to integrate, trying to get involved in the seafood supply chain. I mean, that's obviously the goal. But you know. For, for, for us, I mean, there's a lot of goals here. Um, and for me personally, I got a lot of passion projects that I want to use through food. So uh, we'll see how that kind of works out. You ready to uh, finish up with a few quick hit questions? Yeah, shoot. You and I are out in California. We're drinking outside. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, man. Um, well, most definitely my wife, right? That's, Besi- right that, that's always everyone's answer. Besides your wife, the coolest person. You want to impress people at the bar. Oh, who's the coolest person in my phone? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh, oh, like, like, oh man, I can't name drop. Come on, you're not gonna name Come drop on. anybody. 
you know what? You know who I'll say? You know, you know who I'll say who I would put on speakerphone because he's absolutely hilarious oh. and a great guy. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but a guy by the name of Steak Shapiro. He's out of Atlanta, runs a radio show down there. I did a Food Network show with him, and uh, the guy can make anybody laugh. So uh, that's who I would put on speakerphone, depending on how much we were drinking. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned a radio show. I, I saw on Wikipedia you, you had a culinary radio show. Do you enjoy doing that? Yeah, yeah. So we do. Um, so I actually co-host the SoCal Restaurant Show out of Angel Stadium on Saturday mornings. It's uh, it's on AM eight thirty KLAA. Um, uh, we, we we go. Uh, we're right in studio there, and we go on either before Angels Radio or Ducks Hockey, um, or before the uh, Doctor in the Dugout. After Doctor in the Dugout. Now uh, I'm gonna go random Angels question. Mark Ubiza, does he does a show after you? No, no, no. Sorry, it's doctor in the dugout. I was, I was wrong. Where he goes after us? Okay, okay, yeah, because he comes on my show a bunch. We, uh, we just talk uh, crap about the Yankees, Royals, and Angels all the time. How about <laughs> worst food trend that's out there right now? Because every few months you get the horrible food trend. What's the worst one out there right now? Oh man, there's so many of them. It's just getting it's, <laughs> it's, it's seriously it's getting worse. Um, boy, oh boy, um, eating through a mask. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know what? That's a great one. How about the people cutting a little hole in the in the mask to try to eat? That's my favorite one. Oh my god, it's awful. How about nobody's home? You want like a just and I don't want to say disgusting. We're not going to talk crap at any other restaurants, but you want like a fatty cheat meal. No one's home. Where and what are you eating? Well, I'm in SoCal, right? So I'm going burritos all day long. I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm just getting crazy burritos. But if I was in, uh, if I was in, in New York, New Jersey, I'm doing, um, you know, I'm doing like a fat sub. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay. Now, because of YouTube, food TV shows, podcasts, everyone, there's so many like aspiring chefs and stuff and cooks. What advice do you give people? Because you, you did everything, and I, I want to say right. You went to school. You worked your whole life in the restaurants. You did the food truck, restaurant, franchise. So, what advice do you give to people? Just get ready to work your ass off. Too many kids nowadays just jump in thinking that they're going to immediately be a chef or, you know, they're going to, first of all, don't go to culinary school. That's the, that's the worst thing. The only reason I went back to school was because I was obsessed with the fundamentals. Um, and I went back when I was like 22, I want to say 22 or 23. Um, and then when I went back to the business side of it, I was going, I was going to school. I would commute from Boston, downtown Boston to Providence, Rhode Island from five o'clock in the morning. I took classes four days a week from five in the morning until four in the afternoon, took the train back. And then I worked uh, 50 to 60 hours Friday, Saturday and Sunday and did that for a year straight. So it's not easy either. So if you are going to go back to school, make sure it's hard on you. Um, but uh, and then just 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 get hands on. I mean, it's like a trade. It's definitely a trade craft. But I'll say the other thing I've been te- telling everybody is if you want to increase your value in the culinary world, learn um, mechanics, learn engineering, learn either um, some sort of trade, right? Whether it's plumbing, whether it's electricity. And I'm not saying you need to get a you need to get a degree or you need to get an, do a any apprenticeship, but know it because in the kitchen, that's going to make you more valuable to the chef than anybody else. Interesting answer. So you're telling me I'm not just going to become an overnight star, be on the Food Network, travel the world like Bourdain? That's not going to happen overnight? <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, you know what? It might. It might. I mean, look at Greta. <laughs> Favorite condiment you use? I mean, hands down, mayonnaise. But my new my new favorite flavor slash condiment, not new. I mean, I've been using it for years, but it's. I think it's getting a lot more notoriety is gochujang which is uh, just uh, fermented Korean chili paste. 
I know you traveled a lot. One country you think has the best food? Um, gosh, that's such a tough question. I'll try and stay away from the cliches here. And, um, you know, I'll go with like Bulgaria. <laughs> you, you don't want to go Italy, France. You're going to go Bulgaria. That's what I mean. I mean, you know, every single country's got phenomenal food. So it's it's funny when, when I hear about countries that have bad food because there's no such thing really as bad food. It just might not be food people like. Right. So when I look at like Eastern Europe, european countries like mm -hmm. the best food i ever had was probably in uh like croatia oh yeah yeah. um eat, you know eat the coast in croatia or, or like ukraine um eastern european countries have some phenomenal food it's just different flavor profiles than we like but i love that horseradish that kind of like root vegetable driven cuisine it's really you know call me a weirdo i i have a bunch of athletes on i, I always ask them like who, who, you know who'd you look up to who's this as a chef was there anyone who inspired you one way or another that you kind of like looked up to uh yan khan cook really yep i grew up watching his shows on pbs you remember those of course i do yes of course i remember that. it was the coolest thing ever seen that yep yep and you know what else you know what else i'll tell you, you ready for this you're going to boo me right off the air. You know who I actually really liked in the beginning? Like I thought that she did a phenomenal job of making things approachable was Rachel Ray. Oh, I no, I loved Rachel. No, no, we'll boo each other. I loved her. First of all, I had a crush on her back in the day. And she was oh, so yeah. and she was so cool and bubbly. I'm like, she's making this really fun. Yeah, no, I was a big Rachel Ray fan. So you don't get booed off this show for that. Don't worry. All right, see you. And, and you mentioned Rachel Ray real quick before I let you go. I had you ready for like 37 minutes. You've been on the Food Network a lot too, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, not re not as much recently, um, but, um, y you know, years ago. And what, what shows were you on? Um, so let's see. So I, so we, we had a show called Food Truck Face-Off, which uh, was actually hosted by Jesse Palmer. Um, not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh, the quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Jesse Jesse hosted that show, and I was the judge on the show with uh, with Steak Shapiro and uh, Alpina Singh, and we were just we went around the country and found people who wanted to launch a business, and then they did it in this competition style food truck, and then whoever won won a food truck. So we we did that. That was a Food Network U.S. and Canada show. Crazy enough, we did all the studio filming in Canada, and then we did all the episodes throughout cities in the U.S. Um, it was crazy amount of traveling. Um, it was like a family. That was an awesome show. And then I've judged episodes um, more recently. Probably the most uh, the most well known one was I was a guest judge with Meghan Markle on Chopped, and uh, this was right before she uh, she started dating. What's that guy's name again? Some no, prince. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have had it, dude. That's really cool. You met her. Was she cool? Uh, she was the most down to earth person in the world. I mean, unbelievable and a hell of a palate too. Um, who was it? It was it was um, oh, it was myself, Manit, and uh, and Meghan Markle. Yeah, and it was actually it was Chop Junior. We judged that episode, um, which was the craziest thing in the world because look, a lot of food TV is I, I won't say fake, I'll say produced, but Chopped Junior of all the shows I've done was the most real. And the kids are put under more pressure than oh. <laughs> any of the adults I've ever dealt with in any other show. It's so crazy. And now, you, one last thing: you mentioned food trucks. The show. Did you keep your original food truck? No, no. Oh. I drove that off the cliff. No. I'm, <laughs> yeah. We. Uh, I had to turn it in because, like I said, I mean, I just leveraged everything out on that, and we ne we didn't actually buy it. I was paying some guy weekly to borrow his truck at one point we had we went that summer because you said you noticed it was less than a year over that summer we had four food trucks so i went from one to four and just kept like any money i made i would i was i was doubling down i mean i don't know if you're a gambling guy but a big gambler imagine, like, you start you start going on a streak right so you're doubling down you're splitting things you shouldn't split i mean i was splitting 
I was splitting, tw- uh, you know, two kings <laughs> against the dealer's five. You were on a heater, bro. You can't you can't leave the table when you're on a heater. I, I know, and doing things where you start you you actually just look across the table and tell everybody, everybody, you all need to leave the table because <laughs> that book that you keep playing off of, I'm not going to be following those rules. Chef, this was an absolute blast. Just give the plug one more time for your Twitter and Instagram and your amazing franchise. On uh, on Twitter, it's uh, Chef Gruel. Instagram, it's Andrew Gruel, and then at Slapfish across the board on um, on any Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, you name it, MySpace, uh, Tinder. <laughs> Chef, this was an absolute blast, and I mean this. We're going to link up soon, either in Jersey, out in California. We'll have some beers, have some seafood, have some good talk, and watch the Yankees. All right, brother? Honestly, it was an honor, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Be good, my friend. Okay. Bye.